0: Hi, welcome to the Juno Files. I'm Jim Juno, and if you like what you're hearing, please click on subscribe on the YouTube channel or check us out on Apple Podcasts. Writer and film scholar Alan K. Rohde is the author of the book Charles McGraw Film Noir Tough Guy, and he's also the host and producer of the Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival in Palm Springs, California. He has a new book out entitled Michael Cortez, A Life in Film, and it deals with the award-winning director Michael Curtiz, of course, whose best-known films include Casablanca, Yankee Doodle Dandy, Mildred Pierce, and White Christmas. And now he talks with the Journal Files about his new book.
1: Yeah, well, he was—he his life was, and the title of the book is "A Life in Film," Michael Curtiz or Michael Curtiz, uh, a life in film. And it—it uh, it was he virtually his work. And making movies was everything to him. And in addition to his incredibly prolific Hollywood career that you just made reference to, uh, he directed uh, upwards of 70 films in Europe before he came to Hollywood in 1926 when Harry Warner signed him and brought him to uh, Warner Brothers uh, in 1926. And he stayed at Warner Brothers until 1953, 54. So, uh, in addition to his uh, prolific legacy, a prolific celluloid legacy, uh, I don't think, uh, I know that there is not another American film director that's so established and is so identified with the brand of a single movie studio as Michael Curtiz at Warner Brothers.
2: And he was brought to Warner Brothers, I believe, by Harry Warner? And, yeah, uh, that's what I just said. Yes. Yes. Uh huh. And um, but he was brought in as the uh, Warner Brothers answer to uh, Cecil B. DeMille wasn't he?
1: Pardon me again. What did you say about Cecil B. DeMille? I'm sorry. He
2: was he was brought in as Warner Brothers answer to uh, Cecil B. DeMille.
1: I don't know if that's strictly correct. I think that. Um, uh, The Warners were on, Harry Warner, the company was growing, and the Warners were on the cusp of a great uh, expansion by uh, Harry Warner in particular, buying theater chains. And then the Warners bought uh, Vitagraph Studios, uh, which were over in Silver Lake, and inherited all of their properties and film library and so forth. And then three years after Cortese went there, they bought First National Studios, which was one of the major studios in Hollywood at that time. In fact, someone said, I would have expected First National to buy Warner Brothers, not the other way around. So they had already, Warner Brothers had already signed Ernst Lubitsch, and they were on a talent hunt because the industry was growing. Warner Brothers now was getting loans from the banks. And the industry was in the process of making this transition to a bunch of independent studios in Hollywood back in the teens and the early 20s to getting access to uh, what I'll call New York money and Wall Street money and banker money and so forth. And and Harry Warner was in the forefront of that. So I think in Curtiz, they were looking for talented directors who had succeeded elsewhere to, um, um, to be successful. Now, one of the things that clinched the deal was um, the Warner Brothers, specifically Jack and Harry Warner, screened a print of Curtiz's uh, epic that he made in Europe in 1924, I believe, called Moon of Israel, uh, that was adopted from an H. Ryder Haggard novel but was biblical in its sense. And, and Curtiz had made a number of these epic films, uh, such as Sodom and Gomorrah back in 1922 in Europe. And uh, what happened was when the moon of Israel was bought for American distribution, uh, it was bought by uh, Adolf Zucker, who was a very wily Hungarian who founded famous players Lasky who, that became Paramount Pictures. And uh, Zucker did not want uh, Curtiz's Moon of Israel competing with DeMille's Ten Commandments that had been released in 19, 1923. So what he did was he bought the American distribution rights and then took the prints and locked them up and didn't exhibit them. <laughs> so uh, when Harry and Jack got a hold of Moon of Israel, uh, Jack Warner, with his usual hyperbole, said, we were laid in the aisles by this and we've got to sign this man. Now Jack Warner you could take whatever he said with a grain of salt big enough to tote in a wheelbarrow but certainly they, they did see the film and they were impressed and Harry Warner came uh, to a, to the, the the set in Paris where Curtis was making a film with Lily Demita, another one of his discoveries and interviewed him there and subsequently hired him.
2: Now, he brought, when he brought over, now, was, excuse me, the the best known early film that he did in America, arguably, would probably be Noah's Ark. Mm -hmm. I'd agree with that, sure. uh, Okay. And, um, now, tell me a little bit about this film, because there are a lot of urban legends involved with this, with this film. In your book, you try to you try to set the record straight. Correct, correct. Well,
1: Noah's Ark was the film that Curtiz came to Warner Brothers in the belief that this is what he came to America to do. He had a scenario written uh, when he arrived in New York in June of uh, 1926. He had a meeting with Harry Warner, took the train out, uh, and he got to L.A. and no one was there to meet him. So he went and uh, found the streetcar, and at that time the Warner Brothers studio was on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. They had not yet uh, acquired First National and moved to Burbank, where they still are. So uh, Curtiz was ushered in. Jack Warner was on the uh, massage table, and he said Curtiz brandishes his treatment, and he says, Hey, I'm ready to make Noah's Ark, and Jack took it, tossed it aside, and said, we're not ready to do that yet. You're going to make a movie about American criminal justice called The Third Degree. <laughs> so Curtiz had to figure out very quickly how to come up to speed on American jurisprudence and make this film, which he kind of turned into a circus picture. There was a minor character that was a performer in a circus, so Curtiz staged all these circus scenes and so forth. But anyway, rate, he made, like, uh, several films, I believe three or four films, before he made Noah's Ark, which started, he started filming in 1927. And this was after Warner Brothers, uh, Curtiz had proved his bona fides, uh, if you will, as a director by making these earlier films. And Warner Brothers now was flushed with cash after the jazz singer, so they could afford to produce a spectacle, uh, with the scope of Noah's Ark, which cost them like a million dollars, which was, that was when a million dollars was a million dollars in 1977. <laughs> so he he made this movie, and the 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 anecdotes that have kind of hardened into that bedrock of Hollywood folklore that gets repeated so many times that it's reprinted and believed. Is there uh, in Noah's Ark? There is the 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 flooding sequences. And rather than rely on miniatures, Curtiz and Daryl Zanuck, who was the head of production and who had uh, uh, made, his, uh, made his name at Warner Brothers by writing uh, and producing the Rin Tin Tin movies that kept the, uh, kept the, the Warner Brothers afloat uh, in the early 20s, uh, they decided to have stage huge tanks of thousands of gallons of water and then dump it on the extras and the cattle and all of these people without telling them what they were really doing. Wow. So, accordingly, one version of this is Dolores Costello uh, said that there were breakaway sets for, for this to happen, and then there were standing sets with actors and extras and cattle and animals and so forth. And Curtiz, who spent his entire career on a quest for realism, decided to dump the water on the standing sets. In fact, the cameraman, the cinematographer, Hal Moore, who who shot many of Curtiz's early films, uh, also shot the jazz singer. uh, When he found out what was going on, he went to Zanuck and and Curtiz and said, you know, you can't do this. You can't just dump all all this this water on these people without telling you what's (laughs) going on. And they said, well, that's what we're going to do, and Moore told them they could shove the picture and walked off the set. So they had another cinematographer named Barney McGill shoot this sequence, and apparently it was a disaster. People were knocked over. Uh, Extras were trying to get away. Uh, uh, George O'Brien, who was the star of the film, uh, when this scene started, he was like a slave with spirit gum over his eyes because his eyes had been put out. And this and that, and he said the board, the 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 mess created by all this water, the boards tore off the the, the toenails on his big toes. Uh, oh, Dolores gosh. Costello was immersed in water for so long she got pneumonia. And then, as the story goes, three people were killed uh, by this. And and um, there's an interview with Dolores Costello that uh, David Gill and Kevin Brownlow filmed for their epic documentary on Hollywood. Uh, back in the 1960s, where mm-hmm. she called it uh, uh, mud, blood, and flood, and then said there was much blood and ambulances. So I could find no evidence of people being killed. There's no documentation on this. Uh, could it have happened? Yeah, it's it's possible that it could have happened, but is there any proof of this? Uh, no, there is not any proof that anybody got killed. But certainly, it was a fiasco. And it was definitely hushed up because in those days the studios uh, greased the uh, criminal justice system, the L.A.D.A. L.A. was a very, very corrupt town during the 1920s. And uh, it was all hushed up. None of it got into the papers, anything like that. No reporter was going to bite the feeding hands of the studios and so forth. So it all got hushed up, and the picture – got mostly bad out-of-town reviews, but internationally it ended up turning a profit, although it wasn't a mega hit on the order of, say, uh, uh, DeMille's Ten Commandments and King of Kings uh, later on. But it it was a success, and Curtiz, I think, realized how lucky he was not to uh, uh, have his actions scrutinized by the press or a district attorney, and he moved on from that, as as did the Warner Brothers.
2: Now, and you mentioned his quest for realism. Uh, another one that goes has a lot of urban legends involved is the Charge of the Light Brigade. Uh, that was also one which I think that the horses were supposed to be were supposed to be injured during a famous scene and things of that nature, and that also was blown out of proportion, wasn't it?
1: Well, yeah. Now, the documentation on the Charge of the Light Brigade, uh, there was a lot of anecdotal uh, information over the years, particularly in David Niven's memoir, Bring on the Empty Horses, which was the title was uh, appropriated from a Curtiz declaration because he famously butchered the king's English and spoke in, in a very uh, pidgin Hungarian English syntax that everyone made fun of. And Curtiz eventually turned that to his own advantage. He had a sign on the set that said, only Curtiz is spoken here and so on and so forth. And, and, uh, uh, he, he, he really turned that into like a PR advantage, but it was very authentic. But at any rate, David Niven wrote that, uh, hundreds of horses were killed by use of the running W, which was a trip wire, attached to one of the horse's forelegs and that when Errol Flynn made such a big deal out of it, they went and filmed some of these sequences in Mexico, and what I discovered in going through the Warner production files is first off, there were not hundreds of horses that were killed. I think there were like four or five horses that were documented killed and when they film and none of the sequence no no frame of the film was filmed in Mexico. Uh, what happened was it was filmed up in Northern California and Sonora, part of the charge. And some of the horses did get, did get injured with these pitfalls and so forth. Wow. And then a humane society representative showed up on the set, tried to shake Warner Brothers down for money. And when they didn't come across, reported this and it got picked up by the wire services. And, uh, Jack Warner ended up, the humane society tried to boycott the film in England. Jack Warner ended up suing and so on and so forth. And, and, um, uh, uh, if you, if you read the, uh, uh the, uh, memoir of, uh, Yakima Canute, <laughs> he goes into a long explanation on how the running W was used, and the running W was banned in 1940 as part of the publicity. So, certainly, horses in movies were treated, uh, and animals were treated in a very cruel and cavalier fashion back in the 20s and 30s. And, but that was not singularly Michael Curtiz, uh, who didn't even direct most of the second unit action sequences. But if he did, I don't think he would have done anything any different. But horses were viewed from an agrarian perspective in 1936, much, much differently the way they are viewed today. And, uh, Jesse James, they had a horse jump off a cliff, uh, in 1939 hmm. that got killed and a lot of these. So, uh, since from Charge of the Light Brigade, with all the bad publicity, Warner Brothers would have a humane society representative on set whenever they did stunts with animals going forward. So there was a good outcome to this bad publicity, but the the the, the stories of David Niven and other things about hundreds of horses being killed were uh, wild exaggerations, to say the least.
2: Now, I'm going to be – I would be remiss if I did not ask if you've got any – what's your favorite story you found from his picture, Casablanca? Because more than any other movie, that's probably the one that he is most known for.
1: Uh, uh, it's, well, it's hard to categorize a favorite story. I tried to uh, – the chapter I wrote in in my book about Casablanca, I tried to put Curtiz's contributions because, uh, Casablanca has been elevated to a level, uh, in our popular culture and in our history. I mean, it's the 75th anniversary of the film and people are still talking about it, still watching it and so forth. And it, it, it uh, there's very few films that become what Casablanca has become mm-hmm. to, to all of us. But I think one of the more interesting vignettes uh, in coming across and, and, and finding out that Curtiz cast most of the, um, the bit players, virtually all of them, and most of them were refugees. They were Jewish and so forth. And so the scene where Paul Henry, uh, uh says, tells the orchestra and, and Rick Staffé, play La Marseille, play it. And then he looks back at Humphrey Bogart. He gives the nod of approval to the orchestra conductor, because Humphrey Bogart's the boss, not, not, not Victor Laszlo. And they play that, and everyone starts crying as they drown out the German uh, Nazi officers singing uh, around a piano in a corner of the bar. Uh, uh, one of the people, up, uh, um, Dan Seymour, who played the big doorman to the casino and was subsequently a character actor in Hollywood for many years, said, I looked at the people, and they were really crying because they wow. really were refugees. And uh, the other thing I thought was, was very interesting is coming across the last scene where uh, uh, um, Paul Henry, Ingrid Bergman, Bogart, Claude Rains are all on stage one at the airport. And uh, he uh, Bogart says, put in the names of Mr. and Mrs. Victor Laszlo, and he's not going to go away. Uh, uh, with Bergman and so forth, and they have that exchange, you know, uh, uh, the feelings of three small people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. We'll all eat at Paris and so forth. And uh, interestingly, the morning of that film, the morning of that that scene was filmed, Bogart and Curtiz got into a terrific argument over how it was going to be played. And there's no details there, but the argument was so profound that the production assistant who chronicled this in the uh, in the daily production report said Hal Wallace had to go to the set to arbitrate between Bogart and Curtiz. and that's very unusual because Wallace had like he was the executive producer, uh, really the major spirit in 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 Warner Brothers' best pictures at that time, and he had four other movies. Uh, in production. So he didn't have time to go down and hang out and, on sets and uh, settle petty squabbles. So this was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And then apparently Wallace, Curtiz, and Bogart sat down for a long time and hashed it out. And I was—I tried to find out what exactly was it about. Now, Curtiz's uh, last surviving intimate, uh, uh, his, uh, his uh, mistress Jill Gerard that uh, was the mother of his last child in the mid-50s, she told me it was about how the scene was supposed to be played. Uh, uh, and um, there's also uh, Bogart, when he would come in early sometimes after a lengthy night of bending his elbow, uh, he was a quick study and a great actor. In fact, Curtiz said about Bogart, Humphrey Bogart never studied, but he always good. <laughs> so it could have been that Bogart was just playing for time in order to learn the lines, uh, which is something he did that Richard Brooks uh, chronicled uh, years later in, 19, in the early 1950s on a really great newspaper movie called Deadline USA, where Bogart started this argument over two pages of dialogue with Ethel Barrymore and so on and so forth and uh, they finally got it resolved, and later Brooks said to Bogart, what the hell, what was the problem? And he said, I was out late, kid. I just needed some time to learn the lines. <laughs> so it, it it could have been something like that. But I I found uh, very interesting that that climactic scene that, that culminates and really puts the whipped cream and the cherry on top of what is one of the, probably the greatest, Hollywood film ever made Casablanca was a source of contention between the director and the star but it all came out right in the end.
2: I've got to ask you one thing about now you you mentioned that you know he had he had mistresses um throughout his career but he relied a lot on his wife didn't he Beth Meredith is that how you pronounce her last name
1: Yeah yeah Beth Meredith
2: I mean, she was she was a, a she worked closely with him, didn't she?
1: Oh yeah, they were. That was one of the uh, fascinating themes of the book that they were uh, one of the great Hollywood partnerships. And Best Meredith, for those uh, listeners not familiar with her, she started out way early in the turn of the 20th century with D.W. Griffith, She produced a whole series of films starring herself at Universal and the Teens and became a writer. She was a great scenario writer, wrote the, wrote the scenario and the titles for the silent version of Ben-Hur. So when Curtiz came to Hollywood in 1926, she had been working on Don Juan, at Warner Brothers, and they actually, she and Curtiz collaborated on, uh, Curtiz's first, uh, first picture, The Third Degree. Mm-hmm. And they started dating and so on. There's a story of Curtiz going to a beach party with her, and his, his car gets stuck in the sand, and all of this stuff. But, uh, they married in 19, they started living together, and they married in 1929, and they stayed together for 30 years. And he would take his scripts home and work them with Bess. And a lot of his perspective on scripts, on dialogue and stuff, came from her. But she didn't want any public credit for that. So a lot of this is undocumented. Um, Julie Epstein, who uh, shared the Oscar with Howard Koch for the screenplay of Casablanca, uh, related in an interview, he said, I wish I could have filmed some of the story conferences we had with Curtiz on Casablanca, because he would come down and start to say something, and he'd say, oh, I forgot what Bessie told me last night. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> uh, so, so she was very much a part of his success, and I think that uh, Michael Curtiz's career would have been very, very different Without his long-term marriage to to Best Meredith, she was uh, very much a part of his success.
2: Well, I tell you, what, I could talk, I could talk with you for hours over this, but I don't want to keep you. Because no, <laughs> that's,
1: that's fine. Uh, anything else you have is 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 I'd be more than more than happy to answer or anything else. But I appreciate you having me on, and it's
0: been fun. Michael Cortez, A Life in Film, written by Alan K. Rohde and published by the University Press of Kentucky. You can find it on Amazon, bn.com, and also at the University Press of Kentucky's website, kentuckypress.com. Join us next time on The Juno Files when we'll be talking with Tony Villeco, who has a book out entitled Pola Negri, The Hollywood Years. That's next time on The Juno Files.